For this evening's sermon, our scripture lesson is Genesis chapter 3. So I turn now to Genesis chapter 3, which was written down by Moses by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the God who was the witness to all of these events gave his testimony perfectly to Moses and perfectly guided Moses' recording of it so we know that we have the very word of the living God. As we read Genesis chapter 3 tonight and consider what it teaches us about the fall of mankind and we'll consider, touch upon some other scriptures as well as we're uh, thinking about what is taught, the topics that are taught in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Here we read God's word, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it. Nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin 
and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's uh, briefly come before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do pray as we come before you considering your word this evening that indeed you would cause it to rest in our hearts, to take root, that we might learn what you have taught and that we might apply these teachings to our service to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, much can be said about the narrative of the fall of mankind into a state of sin and misery as related in Genesis 3, and it was some time back that I was preaching through Genesis, and we uh, more carefully uh, went through this and uh, dealt with uh, topics, or all of the many topics that are in the chapter that we just read, so I won't be doing that this evening. Uh, There's a whole lot more that can be said about that chapter than... I could do tonight, but this evening, as we're continuing, continuing to look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, I'm going to concentrate on what uh, the Confession says in its chapter entitled, Of the Fall of Man, of Sin, and of the Punishment Thereof, which is going to have a lot to do with the chapter that we just read. So before we jump into that, though, let me uh, just reiterate that uh, this is a confession that's held in common by all uh, Presbyterians, really, in the English-speaking world, and uh, it's a faithful exposition of Scripture. It teaches us the basics of the Christian faith pretty well. Uh, For that matter, it's also been translated into Uh, Many other languages we know, of course, of Korean and Japanese and Spanish and Portuguese. And and, uh, Elia Massey, who is known to many of us, has translated it into Urdu, I believe. Uh, But it's a subordinate standard to Scripture. Uh, The confession is held in common by Presbyterians around the world, but only Scripture is authoritative to us in an absolute sense. Uh, We hold to the Westminster Confession because we believe it's a careful, faithful, and thorough statement of the main doctrines of the Bible, but it's the Bible that we follow. The Confession is a summary of not everything that the Bible teaches, but of all that we understand to be necessary for salvation and for many other basics of living the Christian life. Well, that said, now let's get into uh, what... The confession tells us from Scripture about the doctrine of the fall. We just read the account, the historical account in Genesis of how our first parents and we through them fell from our first estate in which we were in uh, harmony with God, as it were. We were in proper submission to Him into this state of rebellion. As the confession says... Our first parents, uh, 
being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. That's a short two-sentence paragraph, but there's an awful lot contained in it from Scripture. As we uh, saw a few weeks ago, when studying the eternal doctrines of God, uh, this fall, we understand, could not have happened had the Sovereign Lord not ordained it to happen. And so we see here in the confession, it's rightly stated, he allowed this and ordained it, in fact, in order that he might uh, be displayed as the just and righteous God who punishes wickedness, and at the same time as the one who could also love enemies and sinners. If the fall had never happened, we would not know God as both the punisher of sin and the lover of sinners. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans 3 uh, when he said that God is both just, and he says righteous and he, he punishes wickedness, and the justifier of many. He's, as he causes many who are not just, who are not righteous, to be counted righteous. More on that in a few weeks. The means by which the fall was worked out in God's sovereign plan was that the serpent, uh, who was... Uh, not just a run-of-the-mill snake, right? Um, we can speculate all, all we want about what that serpent looked like, uh, but as the confession states here, it doesn't get this out of, out of thin air, it says that it was Satan that tempted them. But Revelation 12 explicitly tells us that Satan is the, also known as the dragon, who is the serpent of old, the deceiver of mankind. This is who the serpent is or who he was speaking for. So uh, there's no doubt that Satan is the actual tempter here according to Scripture. I remember not long ago flipping through some YouTube videos uh, and I uh, saw one that had a, a the thumbnail picture had a, a depiction of the serpent in the garden and there was an arrow pointing to it and next to the arrow a caption that said, Not Satan. And I thought, well, you might want to read Revelation chapter 12, because Revelation chapter 12 says it is Satan. So people have gotten into all kinds of, uh, gone down all sorts of rabbit trails trying to figure out who the serpent is. Uh, well, the scripture says it's Satan. The, deser- the serpent deceived the woman who then gave the forbidden fruit to her husband. And, and I, I happen to, to think there's it's compelling the view that the word that's used here in Hebrew for the serpent, nachash, um, is basically a, a synonym for the word seraph. And interestingly, uh, the word nachash has, has basically a triple meaning. One of those meanings is a deceiver. And I think that derives from, from what happened here, as recorded in Genesis 3. But otherwise, it also can mean uh, a serpent, a snake, but it could also mean a shining one or uh, something that looks glorious. And likewise, seraph, the word seraph, that's like the seraphim, uh, can mean a serpent, a snake. But it can also mean a shining or a burning one. And so I think that the fact that those are both uh, synonymous terms uh, probably indicates to us here that this was 
one of the glorious beings who surround the throne of the Lord, and he, in rebellion against the Lord, has come here to tempt Adam and Eve to sin. And we could go into other things I won't go into tonight about why he targeted Eve first and tried to circumvent or overturn the created order there. And as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, because Adam ate knowingly and willingly in defiance of God, he and all his posterity, that's us, have fallen. So uh, when Paul says that the woman was deceived but the man wasn't, he's not giving the man a compliment there. <laughs> he's, not, he's not saying, oh, look at how smart Adam was and how silly women are, right? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the woman might have been deceived, but Adam was responsible. So the, neither one of them comes out of this looking good. And as uh, the floor of presbytery, as I've pointed out many times when I was expositing this scripture, we noticed the, the danger here also. We won't dive into this very deeply, but uh, on the floor of presbytery, this also came up. I noticed Max Mann uh, used this as an illustration of a danger that we might have gotten into in a debate in presbytery. And when he, he pointed out the danger of adding to God's word. That God in chapter 2 of Genesis says here to, to Adam, you shall not eat of this fruit, the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. But then either Adam had added to God's word or Eve did, because when she answers the serpent, she says, neither shall you touch it. We don't have any record of God saying that. We get into all kinds of trouble when we add to God's word. But the point here is that Adam ate knowingly and willingly. And he did this in defiance of God's express command to him. And because he is the first human being and the head of the human family originally, uh, we all are counted in him. He's our federal head, our covenant head. And so he and we with him fell from the original state of innocence and holiness and righteousness. So the confession says... By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. You notice how they fell from communion with God? Genesis 3.8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. So God has now, at a particular time of day, it says the cool of the day, that's an expression meaning basically the, the evening time. So in the evening time, God had this habit of coming to them apparently in human form, which we would probably understand most likely as the second person of the Trinity, so the pre-incarnate Christ here, walking with Adam and Eve and communing with them in a, in a visible way that they could interact with in the garden. This was his habit, apparently. And this time they hear him walking in the garden, and instead of rushing to him and having fellowship with him, what do they do? Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then what follows is his questioning them. Of course, he knows the answers, but he's drawing them out and giving them opportunity for confession of sin. So as the confession says there, by, by this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. So their original state made in the image of God was 
changed somewhat. It was broken. The image was, was damaged to such a degree, not that the image has gone away entirely, not that everything about them is bad, but that everything about them is corrupted, is damaged by sin and sinfulness. Their every action, their every thought, their, their every word had something sinful about it, and that's our natural state. They no longer thought as they should. It isn't as if, and so many people, I think, especially in Reformed circles, can get the, the wrong impression, as if uh, everything about us is corrupt except our ability to think, our, our logic. And logic is the answer to all things. And no, that's, that's not true. We, our logic is corrupted as well. We don't reason correctly, but our reason, as Romans 1 tells us, is defiled by our sinful hearts. They no longer thought as they should. They no longer felt as they should. They no longer did as they should. And they became mortal. Subject to misery and death, as we see in verse 19. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And prior to that, the Lord had said, Cursed is the ground for your sake. But you're going to return to the ground, he tells Adam, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Not only that, but that fallen, broken, depraved nature is what they passed on to their descendants. You know, cats don't give birth to puppies, right? Snakes don't give birth to fish, right? They don't lay fish eggs, they lay snake eggs, right? And the same thing is true of us. Sinners don't give birth to non-sinners. We give birth to sinners, except in one case, which we'll notice here as the confessional say, it's everyone born by ordinary generation is subject to this. But this is the nature they passed on to their descendants. So the confession says they, being the root of all mankind, this is really important, that's why it's been pointed out that, uh, that we can't accept, we are actually going against our understanding of scripture and our confessional standards if we start to teach that Adam was just the first king, that he wasn't necessarily the first human being, that there were maybe were other people on earth at that time. Well, confessionally, we understand that Adam and Eve are the root, not of just mankind that survived the flood, but of all mankind. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation which means every human being in history except for one who came not by ordinary generation, Jesus Christ, is subject to this sinful nature. Confession rightly says, from this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil to proceed all actual transgressions. So what they're talking there about is, is our, uh, our corrupted nature. Left to ourselves, without God's grace, we are wholly inclined to evil. We're indisposed to do what God wants us to do and to flee to him. We're disposed to do what he doesn't want, to flee the other way, to flee away from him. And from that disposition, 
precede all of our actual transgressions. Romans 5.12 tells us, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This total depravity of our nature is stated and illustrated throughout the Bible. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. I remember hearing an evangelist say that. Uh, that's, that's like saying even the thoughts of your thoughts are evil. Every intention of the thoughts of your hearts is evil. Apart from God, there's no such thing as a good person. Right? Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So from the very point that I began to exist in the world, I've been a sinner by nature. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart of man is deceitful above all else, and desperately wicked who can know it. In Romans 3, Paul cites Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and Psalm 55, 1 through 3, and Psalm 5, 9, and Jeremiah 5, 16, and Psalm 140, verse 3, and Psalm uh, 10, verse 7, and Proverbs 1, verse 16, and Isaiah 59, 7 through 8, and Psalm 36, 1, and strings them all together, saying, None is righteous, no, not one. This is what God thinks of our nature when we're left to ourselves. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, that's cobras, right? The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Think about that. That's what God says about human nature in our fallen state. We're... We run to do evil things, like shedding blood unjustly. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In verse 23 of that chapter, Paul points out, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some of us. Not even most of us, all of us. Which is why he had to come into the world in the person of Christ, the only one of us who did not sin. Each of us is inherently sinful. We share in the guilt of Adam's sin because he was our covenant head. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, the only way we can get out from under that is by having Christ as our new covenant head, as the second Adam, as the last Adam. We lack original righteousness. Adam had that but he fell from it. You and I never had it. We never had original righteousness. That is, we start off incapable of being good or doing good of our own accord. God's standard for being in his holy presence is like having a a high jump bar. Or when I was a a kid in, in junior high, I ran track, and there were some events I was pretty good at. High jumping was not one of them. and There was a a day when when the high jumpers were all out sick and they just had to put me on the roster so somebody was there. I I failed miserably. But uh, even if I were really good at it, what if they started, every time you jump, you know, they set the bar a little higher and then you jump again. And you go until you can't make it. Imagine if the high jump bar were like up to the moon or something. I mean... 
nobody's even going to jump 20 feet. <laughs> that's, that's just not, no human being does that. But the bar that's set is so far beyond our capability. I long jumped in junior high. I don't remember how far I could jump. It was pretty far for a kid that age. But, but it wasn't miles. The taint of sin is on everything that I think and say and do. Everything that you think and say and do. Nothing about us is untouched by our sinful nature. We're damaged. That's what's called original sin. We fail the, te- the standard of original righteousness. We have original sin. Plus, as the confession rightly pointed out, in keeping with that nature, we actually act according to it. We do what God forbids, and we choose not to do what He commands. Now, that's what the confession means by actual transgressions. So we're guilty both of original sin and of actual sins of our own choosing. And even though all of us who are in Christ are born again and and forgiven in Christ of those sins, which is why, by the way, if you do something in Christ's service, he can count it as treasure built up in heaven for you because the taint of sin that you would have brought along with it has been forgiven in him. And we'll see this more about this in the weeks to come, Lord willing. But as long as we live in the corrupted and fallen world, we continue to be dragged down by our old sin nature. Read Romans 7 for Paul's own struggle with his own sin nature. Well, that's why the confession says, this corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, so it's been forgiven and put to death, it says, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. So we can't pretend that we're not any sinners any longer, that we have no sin in us any longer just because our sins have been forgiven. That means we still have to repent when we sin. And the confession rightly says that the Christian life is an ongoing process of identifying our sins, of recognizing that God's Word teaches that they are sins. We can't pretend that what God says is a sin is not a sin. We have a life of acknowledging our dependence on the Lord, turning from those sins and battling against them and against the, the very sin that is in us, putting to death the sin nature within us. Not, not all change is growth, but growth is change. And so we have to be willing to be changed by God's word. If you find yourself unwilling to be changed by God's word, you're living unrepentantly. Because we still have sin within us, though though assured of everlasting life in Christ, these corrupted bodies and this sin nature that's still with us, they're still subject to the consequences of sin. We can suffer and we can die. And unless Christ returns before such a time, we all will. And all who are not forgiven in Christ are subject to eternal death, also known as the pains of hell, as the confession calls them. Every sin, the confession says, both original and actual, so that is both the fact that you are a sinner by nature and also your actual choices to sin, being a transgression of righteous law of the righteous law of God, and contrary thereunto, doth in its own nature 
bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and curse of the law. Of course, that curse is to say that all sinners are subject to death. And so made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Now, that's the end of what's covered in the sixth chapter of the Westminster Confession. But rather than leave you without hope, because in fact, if left to our own nature, we are hopeless, I'll leave you with another thought that we find in Genesis chapter 3. You notice Adam and Eve did not spring out of the bushes and rush to embrace God, as we just read in Genesis 3. Rather, when they heard him in the garden, they fled. But what did he do? He came looking for them. He didn't leave them in hiding. He came to them, and he drew them out with his questions. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? He sought them out. And he didn't obliterate them right then and there, which would have been perfectly consistent with his holiness. Rather, he promised that the head of the serpent who had tempted them into this position would be crushed. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain, and you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. But before that he had said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The term can also be read as crushed. The serpent's head would be crushed. And moreover, the Lord clothed them. He covered them. Verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. They had made a pitiful attempt to cover themselves by sewing fig leaves together. You and I, when we try to earn our way into heaven, that would be like sewing fig leaves and covering ourselves in that paltry attempt of our own. It's not good enough. But God clothed them. And in Jesus Christ, you too can be clothed for God's presence. And you'll notice that he clothed them in tunics of skin. That implies that he killed something to clothe them. And thus, it planted in them the notion that a substitute can die for their sins. So both in verse 15 and in verse 21, we see prefigured Christ. That's the story of the rest of the Bible after Genesis 3. It's not man's attempt to find God. In our depravity, we would never seek for Him if He left us like that. But He comes to find us. The Bible from this point on is the story of God seeking and finding His elect children and clothing them, covering them, covering their shame, redeeming them by the coming of of the Savior who would crush the serpent's head, forgiving his people, restoring them to their proper state in his image and likeness, in knowledge, righteousness, and in holiness. 
and deep and joyful relationship with him that they had lost in this chapter. So all will be restored in Christ Jesus, the one who says, Behold, I make all things new. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we are fallen, yet you loved us. And we could not love except that you first loved us. You clothe us in Christ's righteousness. You cover our shame. We pray that we would look forward in faith to the restoration of righteousness and fullness and the full joys of you in all eternity. And that in the meantime, we would learn more and more to mortify our sinful nature, to put it to death for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.